I'm Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 118 of Caro Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is someone who's been near the top of my Caro Pop want list since we launched. He's also written, played on, and sung some of my favorite songs ever, Colin Molding of XTC. Although Andy Partridge was XTC's primary songwriter and singer, Molding, the band's bassist, delivered their breakthrough singles and many of their best songs. The band's first two albums, White Music and Go To, were quirky, herky-jerky affairs, and Molding's early songwriting efforts, such as Crosswires and Buzz City Talking, were in keeping with the primitive post-punk vibe. But when guitarist multi-instrumentalist Dave Gregory replaced keyboardist Barry Andrews, the band stepped up its game. So did Molding. First came the Motown-influenced single, Life Begins at the Hop, followed by his stellar contributions to the album Drums and Wires. The lead track, Making Plans for Nigel, became one of the band's signature songs. Young Nigel says he's happy. He must be happy. He must be happy. He must be happy in his world. From then on, Molding could be counted on to provide two to five songs on each XTC album, many of them standouts. They include Generals and Majors from Black Sea, Runaways and Ball and Chain, the first two songs on English Settlement, and Wonderland, a dreamy tune from Mummer that ushered in the band's pastoral phase. In XTC's pseudonymous psychedelic side project, The Dukes of Stratosphere, Molding stirred up full-on its all-too-much style trippiness with What in the World, and deliver the catchiest pop song that the Hollies never recorded, Vanishing Girl. This episode, the first of a two-part conversation conducted from his home in the Swindon, England area, Molding reflects on his beginnings as a bass player and his unbusy approach to the instrument. He discusses the evolution of his songwriting, the inspiration of a certain American new wave band on XTC's early attack, the impact of Dave Gregory's arrival in the band, and the influence of producers and engineers such as Steve Lillywhite, Hugh Padgham, and David Lord. He also tells whether he sensed resentment from others over his having written several of XTC's early hits. He shares how he dealt with the end of XTC's live performances when Partridge suffered a nervous breakdown in Los Angeles during the English Settlement Tour. Did Molding like touring and playing live to begin with? Molding also describes the jaw-dropping moment when Terry Chambers walked out on the band. Then there was the time David Gilmore asked Molding to replace Roger Waters in Pink Floyd. Dave Gregory and Terry Chambers have been previous terrific guests on Pop, and Molding raises the bar further. We're three quarters of the way through getting all of XTC on Pop, and I'm stupidly happy about it. Please enjoy part one of this Pop conversation with Colin Molding. I remember you guys doing King for a Day on the David Letterman show. Yeah, I think it was the three of you and then, um, you know, playing with the Paul Schaefer band. So they sort of augmented you on that. Yeah. Yeah. They filled in because obviously it was only three of us and, you know, what with overdubs on the record. So, yeah, they fleshed it out, you know. Was that fun for you, by the way? You know, playing playing some live gigs after not really, you know, I mean, obviously you weren't doing the big on stage concerts at that point. It was a bit nervy. We'd had chance to rehearse in the day, so that wasn't too bad. Um, yeah, we got through it. 
you know, we weren't a touring band then, so it was it was obviously going to be a bit edgy. But I think we, you know, we got away with it. Sure. No, it sounded great. It was exciting to hear it. And and it was an interesting time for XCC, too, because it was kind of the second, sort of the second rise. Uh, you know, you had like your sort of first rise with, you know, Drums and Wires, Black Sea, English Settlement, and then... This one was skylarking, oranges and lemons, getting a lot of radio play again. So it sort of seemed like the second, the, the sort of the second bite of the apple in a, in a way. Yeah, it was kind of the second wave uh, of XTC when we we began to have a career in America, really. Uh, so that was exciting. Uh, the the English have had largely forsaken us, I think. Uh, after 82, the hits kind of dried up in the UK. Huh. And, um, I think we were looking to America to see if we could make some sort of headway, you know. Why do you think um, that is? Like, like it, it's, it certainly wasn't that you were less of a British band at that point. Well, they were always looking for the hit. We were assigned to Virgin and we hadn't had a hit. We, we went two albums, really, that didn't sell all that well. The record company said, well, you know, you could see they were getting a bit edgy with our career, the way our career was going. I think, I don't know, maybe maybe they were going to drop us if we hadn't, you know, if we didn't make some sort of progress. Uh, so, um, yeah, so enter Todd Rundgren to the, in the picture. Right, exactly. Well, so, so to back you up... Um... What did, what did you do first? Did you start learning bass or writing songs? Well, just learning bass. I came across this bass player called Andy Fraser, who played for a band called Free. Right. I was very enamored with the way his bass sounded. It wasn't particularly bassy. It was more sort of borpy, if, you, if I <laughs> say an automatic name, you know. Um, and uh, I liked the band because I, I thought they were for a three-piece, essentially they were a three-piece with a singer, that they had a certain kind of emptiness in their arrangements that they got together, and the bass was integral to that, you know. There were certain sequences where the bass didn't play at all, you know, and I thought, oh, well, that's novel. You take All Right Now, which I suppose is their biggest hit, the bass doesn't even play in the verses, you know. And uh, I was really taken with that, and I thought, do you know what, I'd really like to do that. You know, so that set me on the path and I bought myself a bass guitar and began donking away at it, you know. <laughs> yeah, there are a lot of bass players who will be like, oh, I just I love John Entwistle on uh, The Real Me because it's so busy and you get to do so much stuff. And and for you, you're hearing the space between the notes. Yeah, I've always. Basically, I've always thought less is more, I think, generally. And here was a bass player who I really thought, you know, that's how I want to be. I want to play play as least as possible. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, I, I just think when you do come in, it made so much more of an impact, you know. That was the, what, what I felt. So would you, like, sort of play along with the free records and just kind of play those bass parts, and is that how you learned? Yeah, there were other bands around at the time, uh, riffs were very big at the time, early 70s I'm talking about, 70s, 71. Uh, guitar riffs and bass riffs, they were quite big. And um, I remember uh, 
you had Deep Purple in Rock. That album had lots of riffs on, and I used to play along to those. And it gave you a feeling of accomplishment if you could if you could play those riffs, you know. And uh, playing along to records was a big part of of becoming a bass player, I think. You know. And at some point, did you teach yourself guitar as well? Yeah, that sort of came a bit later uh, with chords and stuff. But you know, I started off on the bass. That was how I started, and gradually moved to other instruments after that. But you know, it was the bass really to begin with. Do you remember the first song you ever wrote? Oh Lord, probably the ones on White Music. That's why they're not very good. <laughs> <laughs> so so the first time you wrote a song was when it was like, oh, we're in a band, I should write a song, as opposed to, you know, sitting in your bedroom and thinking, you know, some girl broke your heart or something like that. No, Andy was the principal writer in the band, or the only writer. And um, I think it was one of the roadies said, Colin, you ought to write. Uh, um, otherwise, you'll miss out, you know. And I said, oh, and we just signed a contract, you know, to, to write songs and record. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll give it a go. Um, but most of my rotten ones were written in the public eye. So. <laughs> That's well, one, it, of the, one of the things George Harrison says, that, that, you know, Lennon and McCartney could perfect their art before they got a recording contract, whereas George had to expose everyone to his early uh, efforts, you know. So right. I have an affinity with George and the way he's, his uh, writing career had progressed, you know. And uh, it's hard when you're writing songs and you know they're not all that good, but they're being exposed to the public forever, you know. Huh. Uh, that's that's a hard thing. You really want to perfect what you're doing before they even reach the public, you know. Well, it, it seems with you that there's there's a point where everything clicks you know, you've got, you know, the first two albums and yeah, you've got songs like Crosswires and, and, you know, I'm the audience and, you know, just, just, you know, these songs on the first two XCC albums that are like, all right, but those two albums also are just kind of, you know, these sort of herky jerky things. And then all of a sudden, I think it was probably would have been the single life begins at the hop. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's like this really great tuneful song. And then you have drums and wires with, you know, making plans for Nigel and 10 feet tall and day in, day out. And that's the way. And all of a sudden it just seems like there was this quantum leap in songwriting from you. And I'm wondering if you specifically said, okay, I'm just taking a different approach to this or whether you just sort of figured it all out. Yeah, it was a different approach for the first two records. We had this thing about discordancy, I think. And, oh, we've got to be different. You know, we've got to make a splash. We've got to be different. So we've got to play these weird chords with discords in them, you know, and uh, devil's harmony and stuff like that. And uh, I think Crosswires is the devil's harmony. <laughs> and for a while I got into that, you know, and I got swept along with it. And I thought, after a couple of albums, I thought, you know what, this this is, isn't really me. I'm a melodic guy, you know. And when Barry left, it seemed to kind of flick a switch. I thought, well, I need to be myself. You know, what am I doing? You know, um, discordancy is not really me. So um, so I made a conscious effort to kind of be more myself. And uh, as soon as I started that, we had a hit or I had a hit. Right. You know? uh, so that was a big surprise. 
so yeah, I, I, I made a conscious effort to be me, I think. Well, so was Life Begins at the Hop that breakthrough song? Uh, yeah, and Nigel, they were pretty much done within weeks of each other. Um, but of course, Nigel was done in the album sessions. And right. they'd chosen Hop, which was slightly out of the album sessions to begin with. So that got released first. But I think had it had it been in with the album session, then I think probably Nigel would have been chosen as the first single, you know. Uh, but yeah, I began shooting from the hip, you know. I start firing off ideas that were a little uh, strange. I'd had failures, you know, and I wasn't I wasn't too worried about failure. And I think when you don't fear failure, there's always a chance that you're going to come up with something really good, you know, because you're just firing, shooting from the hip and firing it off, you know, and uh, without too much consideration. And I think when you don't know what you're doing, good things happen, you know. <laughs> right. Well, it's interesting because you came up, you know, listening to Free and Jethro Tull and and those bands. And Andy obviously has this, you know, major affinity for the Beatles and 60s psychedelic bands. And yeah. but you came out of you came out of the punk scene. And so there's this very, quote unquote, quirky energy to you. And, you know, like a lot of fast songs and herky jerky rhythms and everything. And it seems like you sort of you sort of were swept along with that energy. And then at some point, as you said, thought, OK, now we have to be ourselves. In the early days, we liked Devo, I think. Devo had a big impression on us, you know. They did that version of Satisfaction on the first album. Right. And that had a very unusual beat. And I think that probably influenced uh, the beat on Nigel, probably. Looking for it to play things on different drums, come away from the hi-hat, play it on the floor tom or something. Uh, and that had an impact. And I think also the Ramones... I think a lot of bands were influenced by the Ramones. And you had the Ramones er earlier on in the 70s, before right. punk rock, you know. They were a big influence, and the Talking Heads as well, television, those sort of bands. But, um, yeah, and then the melodic thing took over. Yeah, it was just a a kind of a thing whereby you just wanted to drop the discordancy and, and be more melodic, I think. And the, I think the Ramones had a big influence on that. Right. And then you'd also just added Dave Gregory. So you have a second guitar player who also has this very melodic sense of what he's doing. So you come in with the song Life Begins at the Hop. And, and how does that go from, you know, you presenting it to the band to the finished version that we hear? Like, is the arrangement being done in the studio? Are you are you coming in and saying, oh, this is how I hear the guitar riff and, you know, this is no, how I want you to play it? No, that was Dave's guitar riff. What we used to do then is bring your acoustic guitar into the rehearsal hall and strum it to the others and sing it, you know. So you had the chords, the melody and the words, and you sang that to the other, and then the band would begin to kick it around. Oh, let's put a riff in there, you know. So that's organic from the band, really. Uh, but that was the way we did it in those days. That's all you could do, really, is, you know. Being a bass player, that was more difficult because I had to put the bass down, go to the acoustic, and you strum it to the others, you know. And then when when people started to get the idea, then I would go on to the bass. You know, that was the way it was done in those days. So, yeah, it was a hotbed of ideas, our rehearsals, you know. Um, one would pick up something and then pass the baton on to somebody else and they would take it further and ideas were advanced in that way, you know. Uh, so, yeah, it was a group effort, the the uh, arrangement, yeah. 
the filmmaker Harold Ramis had said uh, when I was interviewing him years ago uh, that when you're making a movie, you're making three movies. There's the movie you think you're going to make, the movie you think you're making, and then the movie it turns out you made. And I'm wondering if that kind of applies to songs and albums as well, where you sort of envision what you think it's going to sound like, and then you you sort of hear what is happening, you know, as you as you're making it, and then you look back, you know. For instance, now when you know all these reissues are coming out and going, oh, that's what that was. Well, there's also the school where you haven't got any vision at all how it's going to turn out. You know, you're relying on the doing something in the studio where a kind of a magic happens. You know, and that happened quite a bit. You know, where you just you just had melodies. Really, you had melodies and words, and you didn't really have much idea about kind of accompaniment and what was going to go with it you know it was just an acoustic accompaniment at that time you know and it could go a number of ways you know uh but because we were guitar orientated um obviously the reliance was on the guitars and backing vocals and stuff you know um that was what was exciting you know when you don't know which way it's going to go in a way there's a certain excitement about that you know when the four track tape recorders came in and we were able to make demos then you know that puts the song going down one way you know and that may might not necessarily be the right way you know uh so it's it's kind of nice when you give it to the band and and see some life uh happen before your eyes you know um uh yeah, like something like making plans for Nigel, you know, ends up with that sort of upside down drum beat going on. And that's certainly not something that was in the conception of the song. It's 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 something you guys sort of discovered as you were making it, right? Well, up to a point. Uh, in those days, I played a real cronky old nylon string guitar. And I used to play all downstrokes. And the thing is with downstrokes is that you can put emphasis on certain beats if you're doing all downstrokes not open strumming and in a way you can formulate what accents you want to be emphasized by by virtue of these downstrokes you know and i think from that the beat for nigel came about you know and as i was speaking earlier about that devo thing with satisfaction i think there was a big we wanted to create something that was different, um, had a, an unusual beat, you know, and I think a lot of that came from that. And then we kicked it around and Bob's your uncle, you know. Do you think Andy had a similar progression where he's like, well, I need to sound more like myself too? Because obviously, to me at least, uh, you know, Drums and Wires represents a pretty big leap over the first two records. And I'm sort of wondering how much... Was this you guys collectively thinking, okay, we need to, you know, be more melodic and be more ourselves. And also, you know, if there was any element of, you know, you're coming in with these songs like Life Begins at the Hop and Making Plans for Nigel and Ten Feet Tall. And and maybe, you know, that has some response from Andy, like, oh, I need to sort of, you know, raise my game, too, because this is what's going on now. I think definitely. I think after Drums and Wires, Andy became certainly more melodic with his, his songwriting, certainly stuff like Towers of London on Black Sea and uh, those songs. I think um, Respectable Street, you know, they're a lot more melodic than the first two records, I think, 
Um, so I think that had an influence on him as well, you know, his writing. So, yeah. Was it a competitive thing in terms of trying to get the singles at that point? Because you were certainly writing the hits at, at, in that era, at least. Yeah, I had a kind of a golden period where, you know, things just clicked, you know. Um, I felt because Andy had been the writer, maybe they thought the wrong guy write, wrote the hit, you know. I don't know. I certainly felt there was some sort of undercurrent from the others that perhaps, you know, uh, the wrong guy wrote it, you know. But, hmm. but you know, you're going to get that competition. Yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, he had been the writer up to that point. And, uh, I mean, was that a, was that a negative thing? Like, oh, the wrong guy wrote it? Or was it a positive thing? Like, hey, you know. Well, it wasn't expressed. It wasn't openly expressed. But I certainly felt the undercurrent of it, you know. And I felt, you know, we'd struggled for so long. And I thought, hey, we got a hit, you know. And, and there wasn't the leap of joy that I hoped that there would have been. Mm. But, uh, but, you know, that's bands for you. In Chicago, the one that I remember getting a lot of the, the first one that I heard on the radio a lot was Generals and Majors. Um, and I don't remember, it might have been just an age thing where I just wasn't as aware of listening to the right station when uh, Nigel came out. But I remember Generals and Majors in particular um, being hit. I'm like, oh, what's that? Because that song seems to have about 20 different hooks that are just, you know, going one after the other. And then at the end, you kind of cycle them all. But it's like this, it's almost like this textbook. Like if you wanted to like choose like the the catchiest, most energetic, you know, like power pop song, like not to use the power pop as a proper noun, but like, that's kind of it. Yeah, it was nailing the hook, especially at the end, you know, it was kind of, well, we'll bring that back then. That's a good one. We'll do that for, I don't know, four or eight bars. And then and then this will take over. And, you know, yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. In those days, we were told that we needed a hit, you know. Uh, it was a big thing. We were being on top of the pops. And that was what the record company expected of us, you know. We had top 20 hits and then they wanted more, you know, they tasted blood, really. So, yeah, we, that's what was drummed into us, really. We had to come up with the hit. The album wouldn't be a success unless you've got a hit single, you know, that was the way it was. And, and then MTV came on the scene. You had to make videos as well, you know. So that that was the order of the day, really. To me, Black Sea sounds like just a band firing on all cylinders. Like it just goes from beginning to end, just this sort of sweeps you through. There's just so much energy and it's just, you guys are very tight and very powerful and very, you know, again, like to tons of hooks and everything. Did, did you have a feeling like, wow, we're sort of hitting a peak at this point? Uh, yeah, we had the same production team. That was my uh, next question. Yeah. We had Steve Lillywhite, and Hugh Padgham at the helm, you know. And it became a good team. And we were working at the Townhouse, which is Virgin's own studio in London. And uh, we had that big drum sound. The Phil Collins, do, 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 all this kind of thing, you know. Uh, it was a good team. And, and there was a feeling that we were, we were refining our sound, I think, on Black Sea, you know. Yeah. How big of a difference did producers make 
in general. And yeah, you had you had Steve Lillywhite producing and Hugh Padgham engineering on uh, Drums and Wires and Black Sea, and then just Hugh Padgham on uh, English Settlement. But like, how much were the producers involved in sort of the sound and even the arrangements, maybe? The sound, yes. Well, the sound, I think, was principally Hugh. Uh, Steve was a good people person, and he would try and eke out the best performance from you. That was his job, I think. And uh, although he's down as producer, you know, Andy had a good deal, definitely had a good deal to do with the production as well, you know, uh, probably on every album we've ever made, really. Right. Uh, um, uh, that's just him, you know. He's an ideas man. And uh, so, yeah, in conjunction with the producer, uh, it got done, you know. Yeah, that period's really interesting with that particular team because you had Drums and Wires, and then I think they did the third Peter Gabriel record, which is the Melty Face one with where there are no symbols on it. And I think Dave plays on that. And then, yeah. and then Black Sea, and then somewhere in there, the U2's uh, boy is maybe after that. But it's sort of you, you could sort of listen to those as this kind of progression of ideas in a way. Um, you know, I'm wondering if you sort of like if everyone sort of listened to everyone else's albums that Steve Lillywhite and Hugh Padgham were putting together, and kind of you know saw them sort of together in some way. Well, it was that, or, or learn things from each other at least. Yeah, I think it was that big drum sound which became the stone room sound. Uh, the Studio 2 at the townhouse became the sound that everybody wanted. It was on the Phil Collins record as well, which Hugh did. Um, yeah, just the big drum sound, you know. We hadn't had it up till that time. We had drum booths, you know, real kind of uh, something left over from the 70s. Uh, Carpenter's records or something. Not not that I'm criticizing Carpenter's records. I love them actually. But uh, you know that that dead drum sound. Uh, and now we had these these huge uh, stone room sound uh, from the drums. You know, um, so it seems to be on all those records. You know, from right. that time. And uh, Hugh had a great deal to do with that. You know, and. Uh, so consequently, after Black Sea, we went on to make uh, English Settlement with Hugh, you know, and plus Steve was busy, you know, he was mu much in demand as a pr producer. Uh, so the teams kind of broke up through people clamoring after them, you know. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah, it was a good team and it lasted for a short while, but all good things come to an end, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, well, English Settlement has this kind of depth of sound to it where you guys are layering more acoustic guitars. The percussion has different uh, feels to it, whether it's on All of a Sudden or Runaways. Um, you know, Ball and Chain is still, you know, classic, you know, really catchy single. On English Settlement, do you guys feel like you were sort of expanding the palette? It had more um, acoustic flavor on Settlement. It was still heavy in places, but it was inter introduction of the acoustic guitars. They were starting to come in. And um, it was a bit of a sidestep, I suppose. And plus we had another hit, you know. Um, but, yeah, we didn't do it at the townhouse. We did it at the manor, which was another studio uh, at, uh, that uh, Virgin had uh, in, the, in the country. And um, 
I think they had their own stone room by that time because that, that was the, the sound that most people wanted. Uh, so, um, yeah, so, yeah, just stone room number two, really. <laughs> but uh, with the addition of acoustic guitars as well. So it was a sidestep, you know. Do you guys like have a conversation like, you know, let's let's have the next one have more, you know, acoustic guitars and maybe some world beats, or is that just something where you come in with the songs and then it just sort of organically goes in those directions? Uh, no, I think it was a conscious effort to kind of expand the palette a bit. Uh, the guys had bought some Martin guitars and they were using them. And uh, plus Dave had his 12 string Rickenbacker mm. um, on that record as well. You know, I bought a fretless bass. So, yeah, it was just a conscious effort to expand the ballot, I think. Yeah. And starts off with two of yours, uh, Runaways and Ball and Chain. Is that like a negotiation when that happens? Or is that a producer deciding? Or does everyone think, oh, no, these these two songs would be a great way to kick it off and then go into Senses Working Overtime and boom, you've got a fantastic start to an album. Probably starting with Senses wouldn't have been ideal because of a slow start. I don't know. Oh, just a general feeling, putting the feelers out with the band. And most people thought that, you know, runaways with that kind of ding ling 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 Well, and the way it fades in, too, is really yeah. dramatic. And then, the, and then those drums come in. And again, it's like a slightly different drum sound, but it's pretty dramatic, too. I think it was just a general feeling, you know, that, that arrived at that running order. I don't think we really, uh, there was any competition to actually start the record, you know, as long as it started in a most exciting way, you know. So I think it was just a general feeling, you know, in amongst us. Well, when I was c catching up on your albums at that point, um, I had to chase down the British import because the U.S. edition of English Settlement uh, took it from, you know, 15 songs and two albums to 10 songs and one album. Did that piss you guys off? Uh, well, I, I think it had something to do with changing the cover as well. They wanted, uh, they sent over this picture of a horse because they thought that the that the Uffington horse didn't look like a horse. <laughs> and you God, need a horse on the cover of English Settlement. Goddamn rotten picture of a horse. <laughs> so they sent over what they felt was a better horse, but uh, that wasn't quite the point. The fact that it was a local landmark, you know, right. uh, etched into the chalk. So I think that raised a few eyebrows, but uh, yeah, they skimmed the album down. They didn't really want a double. I think there was a, uh, a little bit of animosity there, the fact that they'd skimped it down, you know. And what are they going to take out, you know? Um, so, yeah, didn't go down well. We weren't too pleased about it, no, but I think they got reinstated later. So, oh, yeah. Uh, all's well that ends well, put it that way. Were you happy with English Settlement in general? I think we were, yeah. I think it had, because it had a number of styles on it. There was one, one of my songs in 5 4, and. Uh, it was acoustic guitars, you know, there was the heavy uh, guitar thing that we left over from Black Sea, you know, I think we thought that we were kind of expanding in different directions and yeah, the palette was getting bigger, you know. Pop is supported by Revolution Brewing, Illinois' largest independent brewery. Maybe you're observing dry January. Maybe you're hitting your limit. Or maybe you're a hop fan looking for some morning or midday refreshment. 
Either way, you're in luck because Revolution has created an excellent non-alcoholic beer alternative. Super Zero is a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling Antihero IPA. It's available in six-packs at stores and on RevBrew.com. Famously, you guys were on tour, and I think you were in L.A., and, and Andy was like, I can't do this anymore, and you guys had to cut short the tour. How big a blow was that to you guys artistically and also financially? I had to take Andy home because obviously he was uh, feeling very fragile and uh, promoters just wanted to cook him over a stove, you know. Uh, and uh, so I had to take him home, the poor chap, and we got uh, we had to fly to New York and we got snowed in for four days in New York. So we were in a hotel room and hmm. he all fallen. Artistically, it wasn't too bad. I mean, I just thought that that's what bands do. They had, they have to tour um, because I felt it was just a natural cycle, you know, to promote their records. I didn't know, I didn't even think that we could survive without touring, you know. Uh, but gradually I, I got conditioned to it, you know, and um, I began to like it, you know, and uh, we got these four tracked uh, little tape recorders on cassettes and that you could do your own little demos on there. And that was quite interesting, you know. Yeah, I became conditioned to working in the studio and I didn't really think about the um, the live aspect, you know. Had you enjoyed touring uh, up to that point? Uh, I wouldn't. I, my family was young at the time, so it was difficult, you know. As uh, so being dad being away from home such a lot, yeah, you know, it's never ideal. I was kind of relieved when it came to an end, you know. The others, they were single and they wanted to be out on the road, and but yeah, I, I kind of sided with Andy. Really, I I was okay with it being coming to an end, you know. I had a, I had a young family and I wanted to see them grow up, you know. So uh, for me, it was all all right. Uh, certainly on a personal level. Artistically, it was kind of different. Um, as I say, we had these four-track tape recorders now that we could right. make and stuff. So it was slightly different. But, um, yeah, I didn't mind it. Did you enjoy the onstage part of it, but just not like the touring part of it? Or really was all of it like something that was just sort of less... You'd rather be in the studio than on stage anyway? Well, as I said, I just thought it was something that you had to do. Uh, so I tolerated it. I think if somebody said to me then, what would you prefer to do? Would you prefer to play live or would you prefer in the studio? I think I would have chose the studio in any case, you know, uh, aside from the personal impact, you know. I just, with the studio, you're inventing, you know, and with, this, with, with playing live, not so much, you know. It's just they want the hits, you know, and so you, you have to play them night after night. But... Uh, yeah, and the traveling and the personal side, as I say. But right. yeah, for me, it was the other side. The coin was better, I think. Well, and the economics are, you know, the record companies, promoters always put the sort of the bands at a disadvantage. But I didn't realize till I talked to Terry how much of a financial hit you guys took from the cancellation of that tour. Like Terry said that he worked like 18 years to try to pay off the debt from that. Did you have that kind of effect as well? Well, Terry left soon after because touring was, was really it for him, you know. He loved right. touring. 
and still tours today with his outfit. Um, yes, it was a financially a disaster. And then soon after, we had a court case with our ex-manager, which was even more of a disaster. Uh, so that took us, oh, years and years to get out of the hole, really. And, uh, yeah, we have Todd Rundgren to, to thank to get us getting us out of a hole, a financial hole. Right. Well, an artistic one, but... Uh, yeah. Um, so Terry left uh, soon afterwards. Uh, he, he met his uh, girlfriend, who later became his wife in Australia, and they had a child. So he quit the band and moved to Australia, and I didn't really see him for 34 years. He came back once, I think, came to the studio at uh, Chibben Norton. But, uh, yeah, he was he, he packed it in. And uh, Was that a shock or surprise to all of you? Well, he brought his girlfriend over to the UK and they were, they bought a house in the UK, but it was kind of, it was, the, I think it was the wettest spring on record. You know, it was horrible. And I think she missed her native country. And uh, I think they must have had words and he wasn't feeling too well about the fact that we weren't touring. So the decision was easy, really. That they would, he would leave the band and they would go back to Oz, you know, which they did. And I didn't see him for years, you know. Uh, he left with the with the symbols still swinging, you know. <laughs> mm. Did he sort of leave like in? It, it, I mean, I've seen you know accounts. I mean, I talked to him a little bit, bit about this too. That it was sort of because you guys were working on Mummer and it might have been Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, but it was there was some sense that like in the middle of the sessions, it was like, all right, see at the clubs or whatever George said. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was actually, he left during the rehearsal of Love on a Farm Boy's Wages, because it was like hand drums, you know. I mean, that wasn't Terry at all. He was, he was a pretty meat and two veg kind of hmm. guy. You know? He likes the heavy stuff. And, uh, you know, we were doing acoustic stuff, and it was like hand drums and stuff like this, and it really wasn't him, you know. So I can understand why he wasn't truly into the material, you know. Yeah, it was during the rehearsing of Love on a Farm Boy's Wages. Wow. As a matter of fact, fellas, I don't want to do this anymore, so I'm out of here. So he got out. We were rehearsing at the Mechanics Institute in Swindon, and he just walked out the door, and I didn't see him for a long time after that. Were you all shocked by that? Was there a sense of like, oh no, or was there a sense of, well, you know, let's we're going to open this up. This is an opportunity. No, I th I think Jaws actually did hit the floor. You know, I think we were, oh, oh, you know, um, it was a surprise. I think Andy rang him that night and tried to convince him that you know we'll we'll work through this, but he was adamant. He said, no, the materials not really what I want to be doing. And so that was it. Uh, we continued as a three piece and for a long while after that, you know. So I think Peter Phipps was the drummer on Mummer, at least for most of it. Did you guys bring him in? Was that brought in? Was he brought in by the producer who was Steve Nye on that? How did that work? I think Pete Phipps, actually, um, we remembered him from our touring days when he was in a band called Random Hold. He was drumming for Random Hold, and they supported us on one of the tours. And, you know, we thought, oh, you know, he's very good. He was in a glitter band as well, 
And yeah, and he, what not, what a lot of people don't know, he's got a very good jazz feel as well. One of the, some of the songs were kind of jazz orientated, you know. And uh, he could kind of turn his hand to anything, really. And uh, so we thought, no, well, let's try him, you know. And it, it kind of worked, and he was a nice guy and fitted in. So we, I think we used him on two records. He's, um, he's on Big Express also, I think. He's on Big Express as well, yeah. Yeah, like I remember the Sun song from you on that. Um, that's pretty jazzy. That's got like kind of jazzy drumming and jazzy chords happening on that. I remember the sun, yeah? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did really well on that. And uh, we uh, did one or two other things that were kind of jazz-orientated as well. And uh, I I thought, my God, yeah, uh, th th this is sounding really good. And, you know, he's he's quite, um, what's the word? Kind of, uh, he could turn his hand to anything. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I particularly like what he did on the I Remember the Sun, too. Yeah, and back on Mummer, I mean, Wonderland is, uh, again, sort of a, a very different sounding song from you from from what you guys had done before, like more keyboard-oriented, more of sort of pastoral, um, just yeah. kind of, again, like different different colors on that. Was, was that from the conception, or was that something you guys, again, when you sort of brought it in, you thought, oh, we're going to make this sort of more dreamy, acoustic, dreamy sort of keyboard pastoral song? Well, in the case of Wonderland, I think it was Terry that was drumming on that because we did that as a single before we did the album, and Terry hadn't left by then. Mm. And so we did, uh, I think it was Punch and Judy and uh, and Wonderland with Terry uh, as a single session. I think it was with Alex Sadkin. We did that at Rack Studios in London, Mickey Mouse Studio. And, um, yeah, that was a kind of an unusual approach to them because we had this kind of... Uh, synthesizer kind of bass on that you know right i like that song a lot i mean it's a but it, it it's it definitely is again sort of that evolution of the sound where you guys are you know exploring other things i think the fact that it was done as a single with alex sadkin uh who sadly no longer with us was singles are kind of different because they're little time capsules with other people you know and they're not necessarily going to be like the album we had that with This Is Pop on the first record, or we did that with Mutt Langer. And they are kind of different because they're kind of, there's so much emphasis on them to become a hit, you know. Uh, they choose them as the singles. Yeah, this is going to be the single, so let's try and make it a hit, you know. Right. Uh, well, you got the two versions of This Is Pop. There's the one on white music, and then there's the single version that's much more singly, like much more in your face. My God, Mark, you have done your research, haven't you? <laughs> it's not even research. This is not. See, here's the thing with you guys. This is not research. This is like me having listened obsessively to it for decades. So when I got the singles collection and I was like, oh, the this version of This Is Pop is different from the other one. And then I realized, well, that's the Mutt Lang version before he did Def Leppard. Um, so, yeah. so, yeah, no, I have all the like the the both versions of a lot of your stuff. I have I have the single with the, the electric version of 10 Feet Tall which is different from the acoustic version of 10 Feet Tall that's on Drums and Wires. So I'm up on, I, I don't have to do much research for you, I have to tell you. Singles are very often taken out of context from the album. That's what I was trying to get over with Alex Sadkin, you know, and Mutt Langer. Um, but um, because there's so much emphasis on, on them becoming a hit, they become kind of different because of it, you know? 
Right. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't realize that we, that Wonderland was separate from the Mummer sessions. I, I guess I had had not noticed that. Yeah, that was done with Alex Sadkin. Oh, Phil Wayneman. That was the guy who did uh, "Wait Till Your Boat Goes Down." Got so that it. was another one of these that was he did the other version of Ten Feet Tall. So that's another. Ver- you know, you can see why they're different because they're, you know, so much kind of let's make this a hit. You know. So yeah, well, yes, Wonderland was uh, done by Alex Sadkin separately. And that was be- way before Terry left. So that we, we had that in the wings before we even did Mummer, you know? He's on Beating of Hearts too, I think. Yes, he is. Yeah, those were the three. He was on Beating of Hearts and Punch and Judy, which uh, I think was on the B-side of something. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, the emphasis, because they're done with a kind of a producer just for that, they do sound different to the album, although they're included on the album, but they do stick out as being kind of specially selected, you know. Right. And then Deliver Us from the Elements is is you starting to go down that psychedelic path a little bit, um, at least in terms of the arrangement. Uh, yeah, we had the Jewish harp on that one, I think. Jewish harp, yeah. Yeah, you got the heavy guitar from Dave on that one. Yeah, well, I suppose the Dukes were looming on the horizon, you know. <laughs> Right, so you have so you have Mummer and Big Express, and then David Lord produced Big Express, um, yeah. which is I don't know, not the warmest sounding record to me. Um, but there's a lot going on in it, and you know, again, sort of going back to that question of like how much do the producers kind of impact what you guys are doing? Um, I mean, I'd read that Steve Nye and and uh, Andy did not get along great. Like, how much did you know Steve Nye and uh, you know David Lord kind of affect the direction of those records? Steve Nye was a house engineer at Air Studios and Abbey Road, I think. So he came up sort of under the un, under George Martin, I think. David Lord was kind of different because I think he was principal conductor for the, I don't know, London Philharmonic Orchestra, I think, you know. He was a classical man, you know. What made us choose them, I don't know. Maybe they were cheap. No, no, don't. don't <laughs> um... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how we arrived at these people, but they weren't hit albums. Uh, they were kind of a, a low point in our career. Uh, Big Express was more heavier, I think. The guitar thing started to come back. Right. The heavy guitar thing, even though there were one or two departures. I remember the sun being one, you know. Right. Uh, yeah, but the, the album starts with Wake Up, which is another one of yours with those kind of cranky guitars going either either speaker. So so that's a little bit yeah, of a throwback. But then by the end of the song, you've got this huge like sort of orchestral, like maybe this is what you were saying about his orchestral background. It, it gets very big at the end of it with sort of the choirs and the do-do-do-do-do and all that. Well, that was David Lord. You know, he wanted to we say, oh, can we make this any bigger? I'm your man, fellas. You know, David Lord took it to the Albert Hall and back, you know, uh, with those voices and stuff. But that was just up his street. It was his arrangement on that, you know. Um, my demo is pretty much the piano and the the uh, spiky guitars coming out of each speaker. You know, one plays a triplet, the other plays a straight on. So you get that bam, 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 bam. Right. Bam. And he says they sound like two fighting Jack Russells, you know. Jack Russell's being a, an English dog. You know? Right. And then you had Alex Sadkin on the... Yeah, you know, I mean, they're brought in and they uh, each add a flavour, you know, to, to what's going on, you know. 
as producers for you, but they were producers not in the old-fashioned sense. There's only been just one or two producers who have that thing where, say, somebody like a George Martin-type figure where they take total control, you know, and they have the control. Certainly, Mutt Langer was, was, was certainly one of those. Um, and Todd, I think, is the other. Uh, the others, I don't think, have the... Or have the authority that, that that those producers have, you know, whereby they want to, they call the shots, you know, um, and up to a point, I suppose Andy has been the producer up to a point, you know, it has to be said, right, in conjunction with the producer that's been anointed, you know, with the producers that we use like Mutt Langer and and Todd, I think Andy uh, took a back seat, although he didn't want to, uh, so. Uh, um, yeah, so I guess that brings us on to Todd. Or right. Hearing that Dukes of Stratosphere EP, it just sounded like you guys were sort of liberated in some way. It just sounded like it was so much fun and and there were so many things going on. Uh, you know, melodically, they're very catchy. They're, what in the world? You know, your song that kicks off side two is like, yeah, better than it's all too much. You know, it's like that sort of sound. After that was Skylarking. It just sort of felt like that sort of unlocked something for you guys and i'm wondering if you sort of felt like that for you i think the record expresses the fun i think if you listen to the record it just it it just gives off fun you know um all pressure was completely removed we only had five thousand quid or was it four thousand I, I can't quite remember now but it was a pitiful amount of money to make it so we had to go to uh we got our old mate involved john leckie and uh, we sent him out to find a cheap studio, cheap but good, with good equipment. And John knows a lot of cheap studios, you know. And um, I think we did it in Wales, the first project, in a little religious studio in Wales. The record company agreed to lend us the money to make it, you know. And uh, we were going to become the bands of the 60s and become psychedelic, you know. Um, using authentic guitars and authentic equipment, hopefully. And uh, John Leckie has good psychedelic credentials, I think. Sure. You know. um, he was involved with uh, John Lennon solo albums. I think uh, that was. I think he was a tape op. Mm. So yeah, John was good for that and knew how to get the sounds. So yeah, and we had some songs hanging about which could lend themselves to that kind of that kind of uh, ethos, you know. So, uh, yeah, it was good fun to do. And I think the fun comes across. It's not as intense, you know. We're not trying too hard. And I think uh, getting some of that back on the albums, on my XTC albums would have been a great idea. But, of course, you know, there's pressure, you know. Uh, but it's it's worth remembering, you know, when there's not the pressure on you that, things can happen quite differently, you know? Vanishing Girl is the first song on Sonic Sunspot, which is the full Dukes album you did after Skylarking. And and it, to me, it's like the great lost Holly song. Like, it's just this catchy, brilliant, 60s bright pop song. And so I was thinking you must love that sort of thing. Or, you know, and again, is that a song that you wrote for the Dukes as opposed to writing it for XTC? Yeah, that was especially for the Dukes, that one, because um, 
The first one was out and out psychedelia, but I think on the second project, Sonic Sunspot, it, it, we wanted to expand the palette a bit and to do 60s pop as well as the psychedelic stuff, you know. So the, you had the Beach Boys with Pale and Precious and uh, Vanishing Girl was the Hollies uh, song, you know. So we expanded it a bit, you know. Yeah, so that was pretty much... I'd had the melody kind of hanging about, but yeah, it became a Duke song because I made it so, you know. Right. Yeah. You know, something like Shiny Cage or 25 O'Clock, um, you can hear so many different songs kind of blended in there, but it's still its its own song. Um, yeah, exactly. Bayon Brushes is definitely a Beach Boys cover, really. Right. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Well, we were experimenting about what we could put on, you know. We did a number of stars. It was that kind of Burt Bacharach thing of the My Song. Um, the Affiliated? Affiliated, yes. Yeah. Of that, we thought, well, we could do a Brubeck kind of or... Uh, Baccarat kind of thing in the, in the middle, you know. It was any flavor from the sixties that we could nail in, really. You know, uh, that was what made it fun. Is that you know we could uh, expand the palette quite a bit because there was you know the sixties were a great time for music, and uh, you know so there was all those flavors that we grew up with. So why not put them in? You know, like my love explodes, just like it rocks as hard as anything from going back to uh, Black Sea, I would say. It just it just sounds like you guys are just sort of cutting loose as a band. Yeah, yeah, we just had a lot of fun and uh, got the Hammond organ in. Uh, we borrowed um, Verdon Allen, who was the keyboard player in Mott the Hoople. I remember he got very irate when we took the back off of it. <laughs> he took the back off of his Hammond organ and uh, we couldn't get the thing back on again. Uh, I think John Leckie wanted to mic up uh, something in, in the back of the organ or something, and we took the back off. And I think Verdon got very irate when, when we couldn't get it back on and he was, he'd come to collect it, you know. But, uh, yeah, little story for you folks. Hmm. <laughs> Were you in general as into, you know, sort of the psychedelic 60s music as Andy and Dave? Uh, probably not. Uh, I like the melodic uh, pop music of the 60s. I was, I was a little kind of, uh, I'm slightly younger than the other two, if I may say that. <laughs> uh, so I never got it as full blast as what they did, I think. But yeah, I knew the records they were referring to, you know, uh, Strawberry Fields and stuff, you know, the Beatles later stuff, and uh, Pink Floyd, of course. Uh, but I didn't know Piper at the Gates of Dawn. I had to be reacquainted with that one. But I think that was what we were going for. So, um, yeah, I wasn't quite as knowledgeable as what they were, yeah. Speaking of Pink Floyd, at what point did Dave Gilmore ask you to join Pink Floyd? Was it in that period or was it later or when? Uh, I think it was around about 1989. Mr. Waters had left the band. right. And uh, the other three wanted to go out on the road. And obviously, the position of playing bass uh, was vacant. Uh, Roger Waters had left. And so, yeah, I think I was on a short list. And I had a call from Dave Gilmore and said, would you, would you want to come down uh, to the studio and have a jam, you know, with a view to uh, going out on the road uh, to promote their... Uh, was it Division Bell or something? I'm not, I'm not quite sure 
they were making a record at the time. Momentary lapse of reason, maybe. Oh, was it? It could have been. Yes. I don't know. That was the that was like eighty seven, I think, and Division Bell was a little later. Yeah, yeah. Roger Waters had just left, so obviously, you know, they needed a bass player if they were going to tour. And uh, we had a mutual friend, uh, Tarquin Gotch, who who was XTC's manager for a short time around that time, and he knew Dave Gilmore and the, and the guys, and uh, they wanted to know would I be interested, you know. Uh, it would be singing and playing for a year, you know. And um, as much as I like the Floyd, I I don't. By that time, I'd become very conditioned to working in the studio, and I really didn't want to go out on the road, especially for a year. Right. Uh, so I said, you know, thanks very much, you know, for thinking of me and stuff, but it's really not my bag, you know. And uh, so I. I talked myself out of it, really. I talked them out of it as well. So <laughs> I turned down Pink Floyd. God, what an idiot. Eh? That's all for episode 118 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Colin Molding for shedding so much light on XTC and his tremendous work in that band. Part two next week picks up with XTC's work on what would become its U.S. breakthrough album, Skylarking, and it takes us through the triumph of Oranges and Lemons, subsequent financial challenges, the band's dissolution, and Moulding's return to recording and performing. Go to burningshed.com to order Moulding's CD single, The Hardest Battle, and a signed copy of the TCNI EP, Great Aspirations, which Moulding recorded with Terry Chambers. Burning Shed carries the latest XTC re-releases as well. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, whose work day in, day out makes you feel 10 feet tall. We encourage you to support Carol Pop so we can keep this podcast free and sustainable. Please give whatever you'd like on carolpop.com. We appreciate you. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter, X, and Instagram at Carol Popcast. You can follow me as well at Mark Carroll at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for part two of this Carol Pop conversation with Colin Molding. Thanks.